The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Cybertronic Spree for your awesome theme song. Hello and welcome to In Trouble Again, the Star Wars Droids podcast, the episode where we look back at the Star Wars animated oddity from the 1980s, Droids, the adventures of R2-D2 and C-3PO. I'm your host, William Thrasher, and with me is my counterpart, Matt Shergi. How you doing, Matt? Oh, doing good, Thrasher. It's, you know, I, I'm getting a little bit bittersweet here. This is episode 11. There was only two more episodes of Droids plus the uh, the movie, so yeah, you you can you can sense that end coming in more ways than one, which I will definitely want to talk about uh, later this episode. But the episode that we are going to be discussing today is the second part of the uh, the Rune the uh, I guess it's the quadrilogy of episodes. Uh, the Rune Games. This was the 11th episode of Star Wars Droids. Continues the saga of Mungo Baobab, C-3PO, and R2-D2. Uh, this originally broadcast at some point... Oh, yeah. Originally broadcast November 16th, 1985. Again, directed by Ken Stevenson, uh, written by Gordon Kent and Peter Sauter, off a story by Ben Burt. And in these last few episodes, Ben Burt is always credited for the story. And... You have to wonder what that means, because sometimes that means they did a rough draft of script. Sometimes, especially for like animated shows, it just might be an outline or even a few sentences on a cocktail napkin. Yeah, because this, this was long before uh, animation writers were part of the Writers Guild. Uh, like some were, some weren't. But usually animation writing wasn't, uh, wasn't a screenwriters guild uh, endeavor uh, in the 80s. That didn't change till the 90s, in large part because of The Simpsons. Even now, there's still quite a lot of uh, non-union animated work, and even with with the voiceovers for for cartoons and especially for video games and stuff, there there's not great union things in place, and also with the, with the the programmers and stuff. But that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> Yeah, but this so as we last we last left off, uh, Mongo Mongo Baobab, the merchant prince, uh, look, seeking the rare and valuable rune stones, has finally found the rune system uh, and the planet on which the rune stones reside, uh, and he's fleeing there in his uh, hijacked ship, which, as the episode begins, is being shot down by these really cool sort of bat butterfly designed uh, drone fighters dispatched by his current nemesis, Governor Kuhn. Right, and you start things off with the with a crash, which is always exciting, and of course you get some slapstick and 
Um, there are some fun poses with C-3PO in this beginning sequence. Well, they give C-3PO much more to do in the beginning because normally, you know, when they're under fire, he's just panicking. But all throughout this, he's trying to get out of his chair harnessed and sneakily put on a parachute to the point where Archer even calls him out and he says, What do you mean abandon ship? Just because I happen to be wearing a parachute does not mean I plan to evacuate or abandon you. Uh, which is kind of a nice moment. We also get some old-fashioned uh, pilots dialogue. I love that bit where, as they're as they're falling, as as they're they're failing to make a safe landing, and Mungo Baobab just kind of grips the controls and says, "Hold on, I'm going to try to belly her in." I love it when they talk like World War One flying aces. And there's something of this episode. Maybe it's the creatures. Maybe it's the planet uh, that reminds me a bit of some of the Space Quest computer games. Well, it's the kind, you know what it is? It's the kind of desert planet where you get a city like Ulan's Flats. Right. Um, that being a city from Space Quest 1. And Space Quest 4. Um, yes, and of course, if you, you know, flip around the names, it's Flats Ulan's. Uh-huh. Yeah, a lot of people took 20 years to get that joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, um,. You know, also, you go back to the bad guys. I really think so far in the story arc, the, the bad guys are pretty strong in that you have Gen- you have a Coon and you have Admiral Screed. And they're both two different kinds of villains. And, like, they, they both want power, but Coon clearly wants power for its own sake, whereas Screed wants power to strengthen the Empire. And I love seeing how how they've sort of, they've dovetailed together. But I also like how little patience Screed has uh, for Kung. Like, to the, like I, I could totally believe that Screed would have Kung executed uh, if he fails in his schemes. Yeah, and so what we have here is they want to get the rune stones, and, uh, but there is something called the, the rune colonial games. So, in a way, in a lot of ways, this episode is a bit like the one with the Bunta Eve classic race. Yeah, I mean, we're we're back to a race, although it's a compl- it is a different kind of sport, which is nice. I think that I guess the one thing that the that story wise, the episode doesn't do well is it doesn't really establish why the rune games are so important because, like, it really does seem to be all about prestige, um, and that's kind of the thing is that is that. Uh, Governor Kung, as we established in the previous episode, he's not really a governor. He's a space pirate with grand ambitions who's declared himself governor of this solar system. But there is one province on Rune uh, that does not respect his authority and that really – for him, the games are all about pride. He wants to he wants to humiliate the the athletes from the one province that don't accept his rule. Um, so I guess it really, in a lot of ways, he's just going for a petty political victory because um, it's not like there's a grand prize that's going to help either side. It really is all about it. Really is all about the, the pride that comes with victory. But their idea is if they pick off enough of their competitors, then they'll win by default just for showing up. And then he can turn that into a show of strength. You see, none would even challenge me, which is kind of a, a nice, a nice villain moment. But I, but, but, but it does. I guess I, what I'm saying is I wish the stakes for this race were higher. Yeah, you. They they say it's a big deal. The race doesn't happen until the end, and it doesn't. It's lacking the motivation, as you said, for the characters to do it, because with the Boonta Eve, um, I don't think I quite have the name right, but with with that race in that initial uh, four-episode story 
arc in droids, um, the main characters were wanting to do that race the whole time. That was the whole purpose of getting the ship from the first episode and whatever, right? Yeah, the White Witch. Yes, the climax that they built to. And in this, it's just kind of like casually dropped, and it's like, okay, like you say, these runestones are important. They haven't really shown, explained much or demonstrated why that is, except saying that they're they're valuable. Um, but it would be nice to know a bit more context here, I think, is what we're getting at. Well, you know what it is? It's, it's a side quest, because all of our main characters completely detach themselves from the hunt for the runestones and just win a race and then go back to the hunt for the runestones. You know, it's it's like it's like in Final Fantasy. You have to prevent the apocalypse, but first race this giant chicken. Yeah, or um, your girlfriend just got murdered. Oh, now we got to go snowboarding. What? <laughs> what that, ski school movie is that from? That's Final Fantasy VII. Oh Lord. Okay, so I don't know a- much a- about after, Final Fantasy. So, <laughs> so this is hardly a spoiler because the game I think is thirty. Not 30 years old, but, it, you know, it's over 20 years old. But it, it, if you don't want to be spoiled, skip ahead. But the, the character, there's a, a, a main character called Eris, who, depending on what you choose in the dialogue, could be kind of a romantic interest for your character. And she gets uh, killed by Sephiroth, who's one of the main bad guys. And then right afterwards, you're being chased by another group of bad guys, and you have to snowboard down a hill, and it becomes a mini game. Oh, dear. And it, it takes away from whatever... Um, you know, emotional moments or whatever you would have felt at the time because it's the nineties and it's time for snowboarding. Um, so, I mean, so back to this episode, we have our heroes, they're on the planet and they're attacked by these mud men. Yeah. They're attacked by these mud monsters where anytime they're injured, they split apart and turn into more smaller, more energetic mud men. Uh, and then it's, it's a fun scene. It's great to see them battling a weird space monster that behaves some weird biological rules. But in the middle of this uh, battle, uh, out of nowhere comes an old man uh, on a speeder, Nils Yom, and his daughter Orin riding this really neat creature that has like the body of a of a of a T Rex, but the head of a horse, but with fangs, making it the, one of a perfect Star Wars riding creature. Uh, they show up and they chase the Mudmen off, and reveal that the Mudmen are just attracted to shiny objects, which is why they were going after the spaceship. Uh, but that they're but that overall they're just harmless and. They uh, Nils and Auron kind of bring them up to speed onto the uh, onto the the Rune Games, and that well, there's going to be lots of people at the Rune Games. If you need a mechanic to fix your ship, there'll probably be one there, so you can come with us. Uh, and I'd completely forgotten about this because we haven't uh, seen this since old Iron Pants. But uh, with Auron, uh, we do have another uh, woman of color as a protagonist on this series. We do, and that's nice. And I think. Um... And the way that, that her father, Nils Yam, looks with, with his big um, mutton chops reminds <laughs> me quite a bit of Isaac Asimov. You know, I wonder if that's intentional. I, it wouldn't be surprised me if it was, but there was something about that look. Even though he is, he is a person of color and not, not white as a, Asimov was, it, it, it was a, enough of a resemblance, I think, to perhaps not be a coincidence. And, and back earlier with the Mud Men, um, I really appreciated how they had to use their smarts to get rid of it and they're not trying to kill these native you know creatures these aliens on this planet yeah because yeah because you know she goes up to r2 and asks if r2 has a water pump which he does turns out if you spray the mud men with water they just melt and but it doesn't kill them they can reform from the puddle 
and so yeah, that's so cool that they they it's a nonviolent way to overcome to overcome what's a, a, for effectively a monster. Right. Um, and meanwhile, you have this whole sort of thing going on with um, uh, the coon is sending. Uh, who's who's the bug man? Oh, uh, his, oh, got his uh, bug man is a uh, gaff. Yeah, he is sending Gaff to try and assassinate uh, Baobab. Baobab, thank you. Uh, and he he keeps on failing. So I mean, these are classic kind of cartoon scenes you would see in the eighties a lot of the you know like Starscream fails and goes back to Megatron and gets chewed out. He's like just one more chance, right? I mean, it, this is standard cartoon stuff, and um, but it, it's necessary to kind of sort of up the stakes and the plot. They have to say like, oh, next time you have to really do it. Uh, and it's it's an okay dynamic, but it's not as good as what we saw with um, oh, what was it, Tig and whoever else it was in the first story arc. I oh, thought that was much more effective uh, dynamic. Well, yeah, they, yeah. Here, here it is, just like villain and henchman dynamic, yeah, rather than the weird sort of family business mafia dynamic that 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 Tig and the rest of the Fromm gang had. And really, Gaff's Gaff's flaw is his hubris because he is ruthless and he is efficient. But he never verifies that Baobab is dead. He just assumes that he, like in the beginning, he assumes he died in the crash. And then later he assumes he was eaten by a monster. And that's another sort of fun Star Wars biology thing, is that when uh, when Nils is, and Oren are delivering their exposition to Baobab, Gaff shows up and notices that they're standing on top of a creature called a Shamunar, this giant monster, that it turns out they enter decades-long hibernation but they're very aggressive. So he wakes the creature up with some well-placed blaster fire. And this leads to at least to another action set piece, which, which is fun, but the giant monster is pretty much just a dinosaur. There's nothing that makes it uniquely star Warsian in its design. Uh, and it really is just them running around, uh, pulling each other out of danger and then hiding until eventually the creature just goes back to sleep. I'm thinking about how the rune gains are set up so poorly in this episode, and you could have even had like a, a commercial on the radio or on a television or something. Yeah, they could have watched what that the show rune games is. with the white hat droid and the black hat droid and seen a commercial. <laughs> yeah, the Cowboy R2-D2 show could have had. I would love to see that back in there. <laughs> God, I, I mean, that... that... Well, the, yeah, I, I think oh, geez. the other thing that that doesn't help is that when they finally get to the Rune Games, they get there for the final event. So this is presumably something that's been going on all day with all sorts of crazy space sports. But like we only see the final event, the sweeper race. Uh, so presumably and it's also for, for such an important event as far as like, you know, that, that so many people on this planet believe in. It's very poorly attended. We almost never see the audience. It's in a very small arena. It's it's not yeah. as like it should be close to as huge as the Bantu Eve classic. I... It is smaller in scope. I think also what's going on is less interesting. It is a uh, a race on the on the back of these creatures that look a bit like camels, um, and at least the track in the the Bunta race was. It had these like curly Q things going around and had, you know, Boba Fett trying to kill him, all this cool stuff going on. And this one, it's it's just not as special. It's not as compelling. Well, like it's a it's a it's a it's a three lap relay race and there's hurdles on the racetrack. The only real science fictional flourish is you're allowed to knock another rider off their off their mount. And if 
but you have to knock them off. There's a pit in the middle of the of the ring, but and so you fall into the pit. But as is pointed out, there's a guy at the bottom of the pit with a gravity manipulator who lowers the gravity so that you have a soft landing. Um, and so that's kind of a fun little science fictional flourish, but it really is only there so that Gaff can show up, knock out the guy operating the gravity manipulator, and turn the gravity way up so anyone will have a lethal fall. Which only works as a plan if you assume that uh, Baobab's team, or I guess Aurin's team, is, are going to be the ones falling into the pit. And right. Oh, and the other thing is, it's a race between three teams. We never really learn anything about the third team, just that they have a cowboy on the, on their side. That's true, and you don't really see, you know, you, you think you would, because this is a, a sports match, really, you could intercut to how people are doing in the standings in, in the race, or what their place is, or on the, the track, kind of like when you play Mario Kart, and it shows who's at what position on the field. You have little context and not you you uh, bird's eye view would really help things well, you figuring know what, out what's what and, and what the course mm-hmm. is and all of that well some two things i do like about this race though i love the announcers we get an alien announcer who speaks alien gibberish and then we get a real kind of uh brockmeyer sort of alien announcer who who looks like yoda he does, yeah. He looks like a cross between Yoda and maybe like with, with some orc features. Well, he's got some, some chin. I think he's supposed to be Yoda's species. If it is, it's quite off model because the, you know, the <laughs> face or the eyes are too big. Like it's not. But but if it is, like fine, I'll I'll, I'll accept that. But you're right; well, it's a good announcer voice. Well, Yoda he's, was a frail old man. This guy, he he's sure. he's still young. Only a few hundred years, of course. Uh, so. <laughs> With you're right, the announcer was good. You know, this this predates, of course, the Phantom Menace, which had the famous announcers in that um, scene in the in the pod race. That's Greg gotta Proops. work, right? Greg Proops, of course. Yeah, but the other the other thing I like about this, and this goes into sort of unspoken world building. So you know, we talked about their their mounts, which are. Like they're the perfect Star Wars mount because they're the combination of two animals. Like like the bantha, the bantha is like a dinosaur and a goat. Here we have a dinosaur and a horse. Um, but the thing about it is that I th- there's some implied world building because I noticed every team in this race, every team is composed of a human, an alien, and a droid. Each one, and it's clearly regulation because when uh, when Auron's team's droid is out of commission, when its recharger is sabotaged, they do specify we have to have another droid. And it, it makes me realize I think these games are sort of symbolically supposed to bring the people of the planet together, which is why every which is why every team has to have a human, an alien, and a droid. It would be nice if that was set up better. That would certainly give more clear stakes to what the hell's going on with this race. Like the actual race itself is okay. I agree a lot with what you've said, but it's um, compared to the Boon to Eve episode, and I've said this a million times. Like it, <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot that's missing. This is almost like a, a, a bad photocopy of that episode. Yeah, uh, it's, in some it's, respects. And I think and I think a lot of that just comes down to the stakes. Uh, but we do get some stuff behind the scenes. You know, um, Mungo gets knocked out by Gaff's venom spines. Although this is the one thing about about Gaff's venom spines: the venom always seems to wear off long before whatever he's knocked them out to accomplish. Because you know when um, 
because like when, when Mungo does get knocked off into the gravity pit, the original gravity pit operator wakes up and resets the gravity so that he doesn't die. Likewise, when he knocks out Baobab, Baobab isn't knocked out for the duration of the race. He wakes up fine right before the race. Um, the only sabotage that really works is when uh, when uh, when Kung's uh, droid, who's in the race, uh, Bun Dingo, uh, who has this awesome dustbuster head, when he sabotages uh, when he sabotages Orin's droids recharger port, but also pours coolant into their juice, which knocks out their alien teammate uh, with uh, with stomach trouble. Although then, ironically, he gets waylaid because he steals. So R2 sucks up a mudman and keeps him as a pet in a jar. Uh, Bundingo steals that pet. When R2-D2 tries to get it back, R2-D2 accidentally knocks over a container of juice, which is poured into the droid's coolant tank. And that waylays the droid in the middle of the race. So it's a nice, it's a nice back and forth there. Right. Um, a push-pull, really. Yeah, push-pull. Push me, pull you, as uh, Dr. Doolittle would say. So, you know how I talked uh, early in an early episode of how I learned to draw R2 and C-3PO by, by studying and mimicking the designs in this series? Yes. This episode holds a real special place to my heart because it has, it has another character that I drew obsessively. He's not named, but there's an alien in the race who has like four tentacle arms who does this neat spin attack where he can rotate his whole torso. I was obsessed with that design. I think it's because I like tentacles as an anatomical feature for an alien. That creature filled up my sketchbooks nearly as much as R2-D2 and C-3PO to the point where when I started designing my own characters around that time, one of my characters was was a was a Star Wars bounty hunter who was the same species as that guy, but wore this cool battle helmet and had like weapon attachments for his tentacles. So what, when you would study these character designs for inspiration, did you have the episode on videotape you would go back to reference or uh, you just would be sketching while watching the show? Uh, I would I would have to sketch them while watching the show. Uh, at the time, I was not in a position to tape episodes. All of my tapes was were being used to tape Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Uh, I looking back, I probably should have recorded these back in the day since the DVDs are so hard to find. But yeah, I would just sort of sit there and I would try to figure out how it works. I was also helped by uh, at the time. Uh, next to the next to the salon or barbershop where I would get my hair cut, there was a used bookstore that had just a, a box after box of comics that were like 25 cents each. I would load up on those, and I got a bunch of Legion of Superhero comics from the 80s that had ads for this show in it. And so that was a visual reference for how R2-D2 and C-3PO looked. So I would use that as my reference, this old ad that appeared in some DC and Marvel comics. Uh, that I had in my collection. And I'm sure the ads would reference Ewoks as well, because didn't they play in the same block? Most of them would, because, yeah, Droids was rerun as part of a Droids Ewoks power hour. Um, So, yeah, and and now that I think about it, the Marvel comics I had from the era, Marvel published a Droids comic based on this series, and they also had other visual reference for R2-D2 and C-3PO in their ad copy. Well, there you go. Um... But I mean, in the end, the, hero, the heroes do win the race, get their prestige, and Screed choose out uh, choose out Kung. And you know, all, all that's really established is well, now that we're champions, you'll have no trouble finding uh, someone to repair your ship. Also, you're an enemy of Kung too. Maybe we'll help you find the Rune Stones. And that's and and 
<clears throat> it ends. It's the only one of the series to do this. It ends with an iris out. Yeah, and that what an odd thing to end an episode on. I mean, you do see this in the movies a lot with the iris or the... Um, there are a lot of wipe transitions, yeah. The wipe transitions, the one that looks kind of like the clock you see a lot. And they don't really do that in this in in this series. This is the only like nod to that, and it's so it seems so out of place at the end. Yeah, I do wonder why they did that. That's a good point. Yeah, but um, so another thing, I, I as I've said, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, I praise the animation on this show a lot, um, possibly to excess. This is, but this episode. The irony of it having such an influence on me learning how to to draw Star Wars stuff uh, and science fiction stuff in general is that I think this is the worst animated episode of the series we've seen so far. Really? Well, and it's not just like the usual sort of like stiff animation, but there's a lot of animation mistakes. Uh, Like when Gaff is watching the race before he gets the mud man sprayed on him by R2-D2, his body keeps shifting from being in front of and behind a safety rail. Um, characters, the number of fingers characters have keeps changing between three and four. The only character who consistently has four fingers is Admiral Screed. And Admiral Screed is one of those characters where he's a villain that clearly an animator cares about, so his animation tends to look a bit better than everyone else's. Um, uh, Kung's beard stubble moves awkwardly and appears and disappears. Also, when Mongo gets knocked out by Gaff... For no reason, they cut to a star field for like half a second and then cut back to him in bed. It's just such an <laughs> anomalous transition. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, I, I hate to say this, but it, this, this, this is the episode with the bad animation. Well, we'll have to keep our eyes peeled to see if we find one with worse animation than this one. I, I don't, I don't think think we will, and and that's a shame because it still looks great. The character designs are amazing. I love the design of Bun Dingo. He looks like a droid that was custom built to to run this race. Well, and his his snout um, looks a, reminds me a little bit of of something from Ralph Bakshi's Wizard. Kind of does, yeah. And he's with the that. one who does get waylaid by the gravity trap that uh, Gaff sets up. Of course. But, oh, good. I, you know, I think this episode was okay. I don't think this is one of the better ones. Um, well, it feels uh, inessential. I, I agree. Um, so, but does that mean the rest of this episodes will be inessential? I want to see what these runestones are. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, they can just be a MacGuffin. It can just be because they're valuable. But at, th- at this point, they're doing so much trouble. I want to know that they can be used as a fuel source or to build a weapon or something. I want it to be more than just it's worth a lot of money. Because if it's just worth a lot of money and the Empire wants it, I see no reason why Screed shouldn't just show up with the fleet and take over the system. Yeah, of course. They can do all, all that nonsense uh with all their power, right? They can. So why not use it? Yeah, that's a good question. Unless the, it's supposed to be like something kept top secret, but of course we're given so little information about the Empire in this series period that. Um, yeah, I mean, frankly, this off. is the most. This story arc is the most Empire we've ever seen. We've got stormtroopers. The Emperor gets name dropped many, many times. I do like that bit. You know, uh, you know, Governor, the Emperor would approve of these games, provided he always won. Yeah, I do wonder how Novano would have uh, animated the Emperor. Or, or, something or fun. 
if there does feel like there's a mandate to keep the big name characters out of this series. Well, Lucas always had the prequels in mind and he eventually <laughs> got to make them. So I think that that prevented them from doing too many details, even if the story was set before the movies. Uh, that's just true. Good, good point. So we have a segment, don't we? Uh, yes, we do. We've got Droid Eye for the Jedi, where we try to figure out which character is secretly a Jedi Master. Do you have a theory? The character that's secretly a Jedi Master is, um, I would say, the Mudmen are all Jedi Masters. Really? Yeah. They could detect that the um, the spaceship with our heroes on it was... In, a, in bad shape, crashing towards their planet, and they use their Jedi power collectively, all their mud men powers, to make it land without exploding. If it wasn't for them, our heroes would have been dead, and this would have been a very uh, bitter end to the series. This would have been a five-second episode that would have crashed on the planet and then cut to credits. Interesting. So presumably they're on, they're on the, the light side of the Force. Yes, and, and also that they can change uh, shape and size and, and uh, have certain resistances except for water. This is all a reflection of their, of their deep, deep Jedi training. Interesting. Now, my own theory... Oh, and something I pointed out uh, that is a big, good bit of storytelling. They establish early on that the Mudmen are attracted to shiny objects. When R2 uses his pet Mudman to attack Gaff, Gaff is using a shiny object to shine light in the opposing racer's mm-hmm. eyes. So that's a nice callback. That's well set up. But I think our secret Jedi Master is, in fact, Nils Yom. Uh, a few reasons. One, uh, old, uh, old man. Two, as we all know Jedi Master, secret Jedi Masters love to do, he, he rescues our heroes from some unruly natives. Uh, he's clearly manipulating stuff from behind the scenes to make sure that this race uh, gets, gets run. He makes sure that despite all the forces allied against them, they have exactly the people they're going to need to win the race. Namely, a human uh, and a droid uh, to fill in. Although now that I think about it, it's the alien that Baobab replaces, and he uh, is a human. Huh. There's, maybe, maybe there's a loophole. Maybe, you know what? Nils Yom clouded the referee's mind so they wouldn't notice or care. So again, another point uh, in his favor as far as being a Jedi Master is concerned. Also, he looks so old and Auron looks so young, he can't possibly be uh, her father unless there's some sort of like May-December romance thing going on with a woman that, that's not appearing in this episode. I'm betting she's adopted or may in fact be somebody he's grooming to be his Padawan. I could see that. You know, she, she proves uh, to be resourceful, asking R2-D2 for his water hose. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> So yeah, that that would that would be my theory. You know, we really ought to comp- you know what we ought to do? We ought to compile all this and have have people vote on who they think the Jedi Master is. Give us some feedback. Who do you think the real Jedi Master in this series is? Maybe we'll make that part of our wrap-up show. What to pad out the series, have an episode that's just the Droid Eye for the Jedi and the uh expanded universe segments. The, the Droid Eye special. Yeah, the Droid Eye, we could do the Droid Eye special, the um the one where you talk about the, you know, Star Wars and other media special. We'll have a we'll have another Clone Wars episode. We'll do Spaceballs do another... for some reason. No. no. Oh, how about Heartbeeps? 
we'll talk offline. We have to. We're gonna have one other filler episode in there. But I'm not against the idea of doing a, an episode of all the, the Jedi segments or whatever. Or you can. I've even seen podcasts do a thing, where they have like a super long episode, like a, a super cut episode of just us talking about all the episodes in one episode. So if you wanted well, to listen to like four hours of us talking about the entire series, you could. Well, you know, we did that in when we did uh, Shermometer critiquing the critic. We did season wrap up episodes for season one and season two. And then did a series wrap up episode at the very end. Yeah, no, I think we should do a series wrap up for sure. But before we um, do that, we've got to yes. get into our next segment, Expanded Universe, where we talk about some Star Wars media we've experienced that is not a movie. Right, and um, I've been on the video game Star Wars kick, so I've, I've been continuing that. And one that I played was the uh, Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith game on the PlayStation 2. Oh, cool. So this came out, they don't do this much anymore, but they used to do uh, video games based off of movies all the time. And uh, this one was based off you know, Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith, and you can play as either Obi-Wan or Anakin. And they did motion captures uh, to to get the animation down. And in the case of Anakin, they actually motion captured Hayden Christensen. During cool. The and he was enough of a video game fan where he said, "You know, I this is what my light, medium, and heavy attacks are going to be." And they were in no position to argue with him, which I thought was <laughs> was, was kind of neat. But there there was a lot of sort of extended um, sequences. In, in the game than just what you see in the movie. Um, there's there's different endings, too. I think at, at the end in the final duel, if you pick Anakin and you win, there's some different endings. You can uh, There's sort of an ending where he becomes like the, the master of the universe, so to speak. And uh, it's very, very good as a video game, period, not just as a movie. Um, some of the stuff is a bit stiff, but it's, it's nice to see um, a, a good prequel movie get get a good video game oh very cool so so kind of tough to to find uh, one thing i'm hoping for is we on uh, on the xbox one it has backwards compatibility with select uh xbox 360 titles and xbox titles so maybe we'll see um that be available through backwards compatibility because there's been a lot of star wars titles on there so you never know cool well, I this is something that's been long in coming because I mentioned that this was gonna this was one of my intentions when we first started this show. Uh, but uh, my expanded universe is that I'm finally doing a, a full reread of the Dark Horse Droids comic books, and these were published by Dark Horse uh, starting April first, nineteen ninety four, and the last one that they published came out in September third, uh, nineteen ninety seven. And these were I really I really enjoyed reading these uh, when I was a kid, and it's it'd been a really neat experience uh, rereading them as an adult. I had picked up uh, just to date this episode, so free comic book day happened, and I was uh, I got a good deal on an omnibus that reprints all the droids material Dark Horse ever did. So this has all the regular issues and all the one shots uh, in one magazine. It's a pretty weighty tome. Uh, so I'm only going to talk about one particular part of it. And that's the first six issue uh, story arc and first special, which are collectively known as the Calabra adventures. 
I must ask, is it is this a, from the Dark Horse line of omnibuses where it had a white cover? Uh, well, it's a it's a white cover with a big Star Wars logo on the top, yep. but then on mm-hmm. the bottom it has a really, really nice painting of R2-D2 and C-3PO uh, wandering through a cargo deck surrounded by like crates and aliens. Yeah, that series of omnibuses was really well done. They did several of the Star Wars comics in those. They also did Alien and Predator and Terminator comics uh, in that omnibus series, and... Even um, uh, the Indiana Jones comics, which nobody seems to remember. Yeah, and this I've got their I've got their Boba Fett omnibus. It, it is really nice. I'm prop. Chances are I'm going to go back and try to hunt some more of the omnibuses down. Uh, but this this particular story arc, it was scripted by uh, Dan Thorsland, uh, penciled by Bill Hughes, inks by Andy Mashinsky, colors by Pamela Rambo, and letters by Bill Pearson, and. It really does feel like the, the story arc. It really does feel like something that could have happened in this series, because it begins with R two D two and C three PO on a, a droid transport ship, which is also transporting IG eighty eight, being sent to the spaceport by their master as part of some trade deal, and a whole bunch of shit goes down on that spaceport involving a uh, involving a crooked businessman named Olag Grek, who uh, who IG eighty eight has been sent to kill. And the first issue ends with R2-D2 and C-3PO in an escape pod crashing on the planet below the spaceport uh, where they're taken in by the by the Pitteries, uh, this family uh, this family that uh, it's a family of shipbuilders that have fallen on hard times. And so most of the Calabra adventures involve them working for the Pitteries family, helping out different members of the Pitteries families. They try to rebuild their family business, dealing with Oleg Grek, dealing with the Empire. Uh, and this story arc eventually ends with them, with R2-D2 and C-3PO getting deputized by a droid security, by a security droid, and being taken away from the planet to hunt down uh, Oleg Grek's gang who have escaped with stolen goods. And that leads into their next big story arc. So uh, in the, the Star Wars droids cartoon we've been talking about in this series, they, the, uh, the, the titular droids, C-3PO and R2-D2, look a bit different. Um, do they maintain that look in this comic book, or do they look more like in the movies? They, they look much more like the movies, although one thing to this book's credit is that um, as different artists move through it, they're really allowed to interpret the characters in their own style. So everyone looks like R2-D2 and C-3PO, but but you can see the artist's hand and how they're rendered, which is which is very, very nice. Um, but this first this first story arc, overall, it, it's fun. It's not as, as tight as I remember. And I think that's in part because every story, they end up helping a different person in the family. So uh, even though the same, care, same family members tend to show up, they all get different focus. Um, there's also... It's also, there's not quite like a narrative thrust. In some cases, Oleg, when Oleg Grek shows up as a villain, he's kind of incidental to what's going on. But you still, you do still get a lot of action. Uh, they do, uh, there are, there are characters that are introduced early on that show up later, uh, both in later story arcs, but also in the Calabra adventures. There's a really fun story arc involving pirates, where it turns out the pirates are all out of work cooks who have been falsely accused of poisoning a hut a hut businessman but then later on they still show up as pirates so it's clear that they've decided to not to not walk the straight and narrow um but i'm glad i read this now because there's one there's one story in the calabra adventures that ties directly into this episode of droids uh the rune games 
So there's an episode where they crash on a planet and they get attacked by rock monsters, but the rock monsters can combine and become bigger, more powerful rock monsters. Just like the mud monsters. But in reverse. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah, so every time they get injured, they, big. yeah, every time the the, yeah. the rock monsters get injured, they combine with another rock monster, become bigger and more powerful. And it does end with a neat science fiction f- flourish where you find out that the planet they're on is the oldest of the rock monsters. Neat. Uh, so I am I'm thinking about droids comics, and I have two questions. I don't know if you could answer this. Of course, I could look this up online, but I don't feel like typing at the moment because that introduces all that fun keyboard noise. Um, <laughs> did didn't Marvel have a, a tie-in droids comic to go with the TV show? Yes, yes, they did, and I have. I have tried to track that down, and I haven't had much luck. Um, there, there was an omnibus. Uh, Marvel did put out an omnibus that has all those issues. I think it has like all of their droids comics and all of their Ewoks comics, which tied into the Ewoks animated series. Uh, if uh, if things go well and I have some extra cash, I may just try to order the omnibus. Uh, but I would love to talk about that on the show too. Right, um, and the other thing that. It could be wrong about this, but I seem to believe that at some point Dark Horse did a droids comic and Anthony Daniels helped with the writing on one of them. I, you know, you may be right. I feel like, I, I don't know if he outright, I think it was one of the one shots. I don't know if he outright wrote it or just pitched them the story. Yeah. yeah. But uh, you know, I will, I will have to, I will have to, to look that up because, because if, if he did, it's going to be in this particular Oh, you know what? Yes, it's the uh, protocol offensive. That was their last one shot. Uh, yeah, Anthony. Yeah, Anthony Daniels uh, helped uh, help write the story. That's pretty cool. You don't you don't often get that. Um, I think you know before we tap out for this episode, we would be remiss in not mentioning mentioning that uh, Peter Mayhew has passed away, the original Chewbacca actor. Oh yes. And um, I have a story about meeting him. I'd like to hear it. Yeah, it was, it's not much of a story, I guess, but it was, uh, it was Dragon Con. Uh, I think it was the first year I went, so I believe it was um, probably like 2001, maybe, might have been the first year I went. I, I don't know. I should have gone when I was in high school, but I didn't for whatever reason. And um, I, had, I show up early, as I tend to do to things, because sometimes you can walk around and, and get some deals on stuff right when the dealer's room opens, but you can also kind of casually bump into celebrities and see them and and say hi or whatever. And Peter Mayhew was walking around um, with, I don't know if it was, I think it was his wife or maybe an assistant. And even back, um, you know, gee, almost 20 years ago when I went to this thing, he was in, he looks like he was kind of in bad shape with a bit of a limp and seemed to be in a lot of pain, but he was incredibly nice and I, I said I liked his work, and he said thank you. And um, just to see how tall he is in person it was, it was really quite extraordinary because he looks big in the movies, but in person, I mean, he wasn't in the suit, of course, but it was just huge. Um, so uh, that he, you know, lived as long as he did considering his, his height, which sometimes can be a factor in age, I think is really quite something and, and they've had a different actor that has done Chewbacca um 
I think starting with The Force Awakens, he did some of the action scenes, and then in, in Solo and Last Jedi, it was a different person in the suit um, altogether. Well, as I understand it, um, Mayhew not only coached him for the role, but there are yes. some scenes of Chewbacca sitting down where it is Mayhew in is the, it? Okay. the makeup for one last time. I see. that. That's that's nice. Um, does, does that Are you talking about for Episode Nine then, or...? Uh, well, I'm talking. About, well, I don't know about. I don't know if, about Episode Nine, but I know in. I know in uh, Force Awa- uh, Force Awakens, uh, he is in the Chewbacca okay. suit yeah. for a handful of, of shots. But yeah, he because I I I I don't know how you can really say I've met him because I've seen him at conventions, but I've never really spoken to him like other than like waving and saying hi. But he he does have the exactly the demeanor you would want for a gentle giant. No, it came off as extremely kind. Uh, there was some behind-the-scenes footage of Empire Strikes Back that was making the rounds recently, which is pretty funny, where um, Chewbacca is fixing the Millennium Falcon. He's on top of it, and Han Solo is below in the starport on Hoth talking to him. And while they were filming it, uh, and I assume they did this for any of the original trilogy with Chewbacca, Han Solo is saying, Harrison Ford is saying dialogue, and in response, Peter Mayhew is speaking in English back to him. Even though it gets dubbed over with the Wookiee Roars later. And so it's in Peter Mayhew's British accent. It's very, very kind of a funny out-of-body experience. I want to track that down. Yeah, no, it's it's a brief, like, one-minute clip of footage that's filmed up on top of the Millennium Falcon. So it's kind of over the shoulder of Chewbacca, as you can see uh, Han Solo yelling at him. But it's a, it's a funny bit of business, and... Um, of course, Peter Mayhew will be missed, and it really goes to, to say that even ever since like the first Star Wars, George Lucas insisted on having big credits for uh, actors in roles that were in suits, right? Whether it's Peter Mayhew, Anthony Daniels, uh, Kenny Baker, all got like big above-the-line credits on the poster, and not a lot of people would have done that. That's that's true. So we, I'm I'm gonna miss Peter Mayhew, like because cause like now that I think about it, with all the conventions I go to, he is a staple at conventions. He never stopped traveling. Yeah, always, he never stopped always. doing shows. Correct. So, so I, I give a hearty to Peter Mayhew. And if I might add, if we keep that up, we're gonna start doing cowardly lion impressions. <laughs> oh no. That's for a different podcast. We'll do a podcast on that late 90s uh, Wizard of Oz animated series. That's right. They came out with the... Oh, there's so many animated Wizard of Oz stuff. That's just... (laughs) That's another story for another show. Um, All right. So next week we'll be talking about another rune focused focused episode, I'm assuming. Uh, Yes. Across the Rune Sea. Episode 12 of Droids, The Adventures of R2-D2 and C-3PO. You can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Of course, Uh, check out the Cybertronic Spree, who did our theme song. To check out past episodes of the show, just look up uh, SequelCast 2 and Friends on uh, your favorite podcast app. Or just go to SequelCast2.com. All the episodes get posted on there. Um... And not only do we have episodes of Droids, but, you know, the other, the main show, uh, Sequel Cast 2. And I'm even posting episodes of the original run of Sequel Cast. So we have them back online again. Yeah, I think and you just posted the Planet of the Apes uh, episodes we did. I, I did. And, um, you know, as you listen to those, you 
realize we started with terrible microphones. <laughs> uh, but but not not just that with the audio quality. It's um, we've been doing the show for over a decade, and our voices have changed a bit in that time. So I find that interesting. I suppose that's inevitable. Yes. Um, and soon we'll sound like old men. Like this, we will talk one day. <laughs> mm, yes. Okay. So, uh, or I guess one day like this, we will talk. see uh, for droids a Star Wars. Sh- I don't even know my fucking name of the show. <laughs> for in trouble again. For in trouble again. A droids podcast. This is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. Thrasher. You're right, R2. I was sitting rather tall in the saddle. That's a terrible C-3PO impression. (laughs) 